Amen. Well, it's great to see you today and gather together as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're more than halfway through. We've come to Matthew chapter 17 today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn over to Matthew 17. You know, a lot of people hear about Christianity and hear about what we believe as those who follow Jesus. And one of the things that they hesitate on is that it seems like we can be real rational and normal, but then that we see that every once in a while some crazy magic thing happened and then things went back to normal and then another crazy magic thing happened and then things came back to normal. And when you watch the life of Jesus, one of the things that's so stunning is that when things that we would think are really pretty crazy and magical, like in Matthew 17, it starts with the story of the transfiguration, that Jesus doesn't seem to act like there's anything weird about it. That if, for instance, we were here today and Moses and Elijah showed up standing here, I wouldn't just be like, eh, talking to him and acting like nothing happened. So when it came to Jesus, he seemed comfortable with things that we would consider to be abnormal or supernatural. But what I would suggest to you as we look at this chapter, maybe these things that we regard as supernatural are a lot more normal than we think. It's just outside the realm of our awareness. If someone from 100 years ago had come and seen us watching a a baseball game on TV and, oh, this game is in Los Angeles, but we're here in Orange County watching it in a box, we would think, whoa, that's just magical. But we understand at least a degree of the science that this is actually real and possible. And I would suggest to you as we look at chapter 17 that Jesus gives us some insights into the fact that reality is much more amazing than we would initially suspect in the way that we consider reality. So uh, some of this is going to go into areas where I'm like, yeah, I don't even understand this, but there are wonderful hints that the Lord gives us to the fact that this world is even more amazing than what we thought. So this chapter has three basic stories. The first one is the transfiguration, where Jesus takes three of his disciples with him, goes up into the mountain, and Moses and Elijah show up, and they're having this conversation. Jesus is all lit up, and then it's all over. And then you have a kid who was sick with epilepsy, And in his case, it was because of a demon. Disciples couldn't cast him out, but then Jesus does and then says, actually, you guys could move mountains if you just had a tiny bit of faith. It would help greatly if you would have more prayer and fasting that would help you to connect with this world, the power of faith that you have than what you do. And then ultimately, as the chapter ends up, the tax guy comes around, so Jesus has Peter go catch a fish. There's a coin in the fish's mouth and he gives it to the tax guy and says there. So three stories that we look at them and go, wow, this is, do I have to suspend my common sense 
in order to believe these stories that sound like fantasies. And there are a lot of people who reject the scripture and reject the story of Jesus simply because there are these weird things that happen that don't seem like they're a part of our everyday normal awareness. So let's look into these a little bit. The, the first story of the transfiguration starts really in the last verse of the previous chapter where he said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this almost seems like a stretch. This, he, in all three of the Gospels that give the transfiguration, it's immediately preceded by this statement. But it's not easy to figure out what he's talking about. Okay, are you going to see a glimpse? You're going to see a vision? You're going to, what are you going to see? But at any rate, he says that. And then he took Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain by themselves. And in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is the Greek word metamorphosis. He actually morphed into something different than he was as they watched. It was like this, he was magically transformed, if you will. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. And to make matters even more crazy, behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Imagine the disciples looking. Jesus changes into this glorious figure before their eyes. And then Moses and Elijah are there. And they're like, how do we know that's even Moses and Elijah? What, I mean, we've never seen pictures of them. Do they have name tags? But they somehow knew who it was. And they're having like a normal conversation. Nothing intimidating about it. Just a nice conversation. Weird, really weird stuff. And so Peter, you know, he was never without something to say. So he interrupted the moment. He goes, hey, guys, interesting conversation, but I'd like to put in my two cents worth. He answered, they didn't ask anything, and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's like, this is kind of a big moment. And, you know, Jesus, I consider you to be on the same level with Moses and Elijah. And, and so, you know, he, he did what religious people often do. When something happens that they don't understand, they decide to make an image. They decide to make a statue. They decide to make something concrete and conceivable and go, let's let this represent this moment. And so, again, the reduction of turning an amazing moment into a souvenir stand, basically. And so Jesus wasn't going for it. After he said that, um, whilst Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed all of them. Whoa. And suddenly... A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. 
they would remember hearing that same voice coming from heaven when Jesus was baptized. And now here's the voice of God again saying, this is my son, I love him, and I'm pleased with him, and you need to listen to him. And when the cloud lifted, the disciples had fallen on their faces. They were like, oh, this is weird. They didn't think it was weird that Moses and Elijah show up or that Jesus was glowing, but now this voice got them. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah were now gone. And now it's just Jesus, no longer morphed into this glowing icon, but now it's just Jesus again. And so as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision, tell what you've seen literally to no one until the son of man is risen from the dead. Why didn't he want them to tell people? This was a lot for someone to accept. You know, if, if they told you that, you'd be like, uh, yeah, right. And they also, nobody was ready. They weren't ready. So how could somebody else be ready? So Jesus just told him, just sit on this one until later. And then the disciples asked him in verse 10, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now what they are trying to do is to plug this event into their biblical prophecy. So in Malachi, it had said that God was going to send Elijah as a forerunner of the Messiah, that Elijah would come and that would open the door. So what they're thinking is, Elijah just came. Is this a fulfillment of prophecy? Is this something that now you're finally going to really take over and you're really going to do your thing? And so they were trying to understand, and it's, a, it's an honest question, but Jesus' you know, response to them was, Actually, you know, he said, indeed, Elijah is coming first. Yeah, you're right. Elijah will come and he'll restore all things. But I say to you in verse 12 that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands. So he said, yes, In the future, Elijah will come. But Elijah has already come, and they killed him. Now, if I heard that, I would assume that the first time Elijah came, yeah, he was a prophet of God, and they didn't really receive him or honor him. So in the future, he's going to come, because I'm thinking on this time and space continuum. But what's interesting is the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Wow. And this whole idea of, well, he said, now if if he's talking about John the Baptist, which apparently was, then it's like, yeah, Elijah came, and if people, you know, in John the Baptist, and if people had received it, he would have been Elijah, but then he wasn't Elijah because they killed him, and now Elijah's still going to come. 
It's like, whoa, your head would be spinning. What in the world does this mean? And people still debate to this day. Well, what if they, the children of Israel had received Jesus as Messiah? Then would Elijah have been the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi? And therefore, a real Elijah wouldn't have to come? Or why does John you know, tell us in Revelation about two witnesses coming, presumably Moses and Elijah who are here? It's like they got a flash of the past and the future all in one weird kind of time warp. And nobody's really understanding what's happening. And so you look at the story, and there are people who would hear the story and just go, come on, you believe it? In the explanation in the Bible, it doesn't even make a ton of sense. People have argued about it for a couple thousand years, exactly what this meant. But let's move on to the second story. This poor kid, it says that he was epileptic in our version um, it, literally, the word means moonstruck, but when someone was epileptic, that was one of the phrases they would use for him. But in his case, it was because of a demon. And his dad was bringing him, and he came to Jesus, and he goes, my son's got these problems. He keeps throwing himself in the fire and the water. And I took him to your disciples. These were the disciples that didn't make the cut to go see the Mount of Transfiguration. So they're kind of the lower-level disciples, you know, the other nine. And And so he goes, and they couldn't do a thing. Now, Jesus had given them the ability to deal with people who had demons. So why, in this case, were they not able to do it? It doesn't really say. But he said, they couldn't cure him, so I want you to do it. So Jesus said, oh, faithless and perverse. And he, that's probably not a great translation, perverse. That word just means you're, you're twisted, you're out of sync. You don't get it. You're clueless. Um, Generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here. Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Like, what did we do wrong? How was our technique flawed? We've done this with other demons. We couldn't nail this one down. What's, What's our problem? And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, you don't have enough faith, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. So he says, you can do so much. There's so much that is within your capacities if you have enough faith. But the connection that you need to have with God will be enhanced if you would spend more time in prayer, in spiritual disciplines, in fasting. You need to develop your faith to the point where there will be amazing you know, opportunities for you to defy the ordinary limits. The idea of moving a mountain is like you are way more capable of doing things than you think you are. You aren't scratching the surface of what is possible for you. And so then um, a guy, you know, this guy with his son was healed. And Jesus told him, you know, you didn't believe enough and so on. And then he goes on and and he began to tell them again about him. He was going to die and they're going to kill him. And the third day he will be raised. 
and they were exceedingly sorrowful. He told them he's going to raise again in three days, and yet still they're out of sync. They're not understanding that for him this isn't a big deal. He's not worked up about it. So then finally when they came to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter in verse 24 and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter said, yes. They had taxes that Jews had to pay to support the temple. It was separate from the taxes that they had to pay for the Romans. It was like the money that we contribute to the church to support the work of the church compared to the money that we give the government to do completely idiotic things with it. So they had to kind of do both. So this tax guy goes, oh, by the way, does Jesus pay taxes? And he's like, oh, yes. And then Peter's like, I wonder if he really does. And so he goes to, goes to Jesus, and before he could even ask, Jesus said this, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, well, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Interesting perspective. He's reminding him, I'm the son of God. The temple is a building for God. Now, do you think that any high government official has kids who pay taxes? Probably not. You look at who pays taxes and who doesn't, and it's always an interesting study for sure. But he's laying this out to say, I'm the son of God. I shouldn't have to pay taxes to my father, God. But then he said, however, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you've opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. This is interesting that even though he felt like legally he's not required to pay a tax to his father's temple, yet he didn't want to offend anybody, so he just did it. I knew a guy years ago who was a Christian guy who just was adamant that income tax isn't real, that the Constitution doesn't have it, and I don't have to pay it. And I argued with him. I'm like, you're going to end up in jail. And He's like, I don't care. I don't have to pay. I'm not required. I pay every tax I'm required to pay. I go, what taxes are those? When I buy gasoline, I'm paying road taxes. When I buy a product at the store, I'm paying sales tax. Well, he ended up being in jail for quite a few years because it would have been much smarter for him to just go, I don't want to offend you guys. So I'll pay the tax even though I don't think I have to. So in this chapter... We have three interesting and kind of weird stories. This seemingly magical transfiguration where a time warp happens and Jesus is, is morphed into, whoa, him and his glory. And somehow Moses and Elijah travel through time and are able to come and sit there and have this conversation. The disciples are able to see it. Then, and then mentioning, and by the way, John the Baptist, he comes in and out of history as well. Then you have this hint about the fact that the, your potential 
is unbelievable. If you really had more faith, and that faith would come through a relation and a connection with God, whereby you spend more time in a devotional life, in prayer, and in spiritual disciplines, fasting, and you'd be surprised what you can do. So you aren't scratching the surface of what you could do, is what he's saying, in this real world. And then, again, ultimately, it's like, I'll pay taxes, but I'll do it by a coin coming out of the mouth of a fish. Who does that? How did he know? Now, you can go, look, sometimes people drop money when they're fishing. It goes in the water. A fish could eat it. It gets lodged in their throat. Perfectly natural explanation. Except, how did he know that the first fish that he was going to pull out would have just the right denomination of coin that could pay two people's taxes? So again, you look at these stories, and for most people in this world, they would go, these are fantasy stories. I can't believe this. This is, this is crazy. This is something that is so magical that it, it is beyond belief. And I can't believe you believed this actually happened. Now, there are other people who say, no, I'm a Christian, and so I do believe this happened. But what we end up with is the idea that somehow... There is a natural flow to history. There's a natural existence of time and space. And that periodically, God can step out of that and violate it and break the laws of nature and do something magical and then step back into time and space. And so that's what we believe. And therefore, we often have to believe that, you know, he does it a lot but he doesn't do it as much at certain times as other times. And Jesus came to become a person, but then he keeps doing stuff that's cheating the system of, of science and, and time. You know? And so it causes us to go, okay, what do we do with this? How do we handle this? How do we understand it? And I would suggest to you, our image of Jesus, like, let's face it, everywhere he was, crazy stuff was going on all around him. And he always acted like it was normal. He didn't go, ta-da, he just, crazy stuff happened. And he's like, yeah, no kidding, isn't that something? Yeah. Did you hear that conversation? That was interesting with Moses and Elijah. So... Maybe I would suggest to you the possibility that Jesus didn't come and violate the laws, so-called laws of nature, violate the limitations of time and space. Perhaps Jesus came to reveal to us that there is a lot more to reality, to actual nature, if you will, than what we comprehend and understand. Maybe he was always acting within the world, within nature, and yet we just have such a simplistic understanding of it. Now, our understanding of time and space is pretty reductionist. Most of us, when we think about time, we think of a continuum, that there was a day when time started, and then everything was moving forward and stuff happened and happened and boom, here we are today. And now we know that things are going to continue. And so time will extend off 
to a certain point in time where then perhaps time will be gone. We're not sure what that means. Now, that helps us to understand it's something that we can conceive of fairly easily, this limited continuum of time. The problem is the Bible doesn't seem to be so locked into that continuum. I mean, in fact, all of the prophecies in the Bible would kind of belie that because, wait, the future hasn't happened yet, but you can tell me what's going to happen in the future, and yet you feel that we are operating within time? That makes you scratch your head. But beyond that, beyond the simplistic way that we understand time and space, if we begin to understand and delve into science, science, ironically, where so many people see science as an enemy, it's amazing how much science is scratching the surface, just beginning to understand that there's much more to our world, to this system, there's much more to time and to space than we can even fathom. That through the development of like Einstein's theory of relativity just shook the foundation of the world in a lot of ways because the idea that time could be something that it could be operated outside of, that time is actually in some ways a physical characteristic that, that places, you know, that operates around the world, but it isn't, you know, energy and mass and speed and all of those things that combine to make what we call time, Einstein made us go, huh, perhaps it's even possible to transcend what we call time and to move forward or backward in time. Now, science hasn't been able to figure out how to do that yet, but there are very, and there are scientists who think that's impossible, but there are a lot of really smart people who think that this is something that could one day be a possibility because time is way more complex than we realize. Then you get into the study of quantum physics, and I'm not going to bore you with string theory and a lot of things like that and quarks and all, but, but trust me, science is dabbling into reality and finding things that are, that are shocking that let us know it's way more complex. And if you think that time and space and matter are fixed, then you're really going against everything that science is discovering today, which shouldn't disturb you too much unless it seems like the Bible does that too. I, um, Madeline Lingle, who was arguably the, one of the greatest certain, certainly authors who's from America, and she wrote the book that was, it was always perceived of as a children's book, a Wrinkle in Time, I think it won the Peabody Award and stuff, but she's a brilliant Christian and also a physics nut. And she was studying physics back in the 60s, and she was a Christian and studying the Bible. And she wrote the book A Wrinkle in Time. And the basic postulate of A Wrinkle in Time was a story of someone who could, who could actually be translated through time by time being wrinkled up and you being able to jump. And that may sound preposterous. At the time, people are, oh, it's just fantasy. C.S. Lewis said that everything that you can fantasize 
is probably real somewhere because you would not be able to conceive of something unless it was pointing at a reality of which you are not currently aware. I don't know if he's right or not. In fact, I don't, I'm not telling you all this stuff because, well, I, let me explain it to you and make it simple. What I'm trying to explain to you is it's more complex than you think. And when we read stories about Jesus, we shouldn't just put them into a category of, well, it's just magic. If, in fact, the world is, through study, uncovering the idea that this is much closer to realistic possibilities, it's just beyond our particular awareness of how it might work today. Now, if that were were the case, are there hints in Scripture that there's more to this than what we think of? And I would suggest that there are tons of them. Uh, One of them, in the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, Solomon, in in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, where he wrote the the lyrics to the birds hit song, turn, turn, turn. You know, to everything, there's a time and a season, and a time to be born, a time to die, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time. All of those things about time. And then they didn't put in the song, and we almost never even reflect on what it might mean. But Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said this about God He has put eternity in their hearts. What does that mean? Eternity in our hearts? I don't know what it means. But it seems to indicate something more complex than our simplistic understandings of reality as we see it. I think that you might agree with me on that. You might not. Look at the book of Daniel. Such an amazing book predicting events to the day. Daniel, the leader of the Magi in Babylon, this godly guy who was in prayer constantly. What he knew, how he knew when Messiah was coming, how he knew how other events would take place, how he could hear dreams and say, your dream is actually a reflection of the future of what's going to happen. I mean, we don't understand even what dreams are. We guess at it. Daniel had this insight that would allow him to take a pagan king's dream and say, there is more truth to this. If you take a little wrinkle in time, there's more to this than you realize. Now, Daniel, when you read the book of Daniel, it's a short little book. One of the shorter books in the Old Testament, but it uses the word time like 30 times. No other book in the Bible talks about time as much as Daniel does. So you go, hmm, that's interesting. Now, if we also, over in 2 Timothy, you know, Paul certainly learned things in his walk with the Lord. And I like, I'm always interested in what people have to say when life is almost over for them. Because, you know, uh, when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he knew that he was about to die. And so he's like trying to share stuff and kind of like, but, you know, I don't know what you're, what you're ready to receive. But he said this in 2 Timothy chapter 1 as he's writing. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Okay, speaking of God, who has saved us, 
and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Not that God thought of it before time began. It was literally given to us before time began. That when we received the forgiveness of sins, that was something that was happening outside of time. There was something supernatural going on. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's fascinating when I'm thinking about, okay, I think I have a handle on all this stuff. It's ready for me to to build a statue and say, yep, I got it. Now, when you look at what Paul wrote to Titus, in in Titus chapter 1, he said, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of, of God's elect and acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Wow. God promised eternal life before time began. Do you get the idea that in the same way that when you follow the life of Jesus, it seems like he veers in and out of the time-space continuum? And, you know, science is discovering things that are tantalizingly close to the same ideas that Jesus was talking about, that Paul's talking about, that Solomon talked about, that Daniel talked about. I start looking at it and going, maybe I ought to stop thinking of Jesus as the guy who came to be the exception to the natural order, to to bring a little supernatural into that which is natural. And maybe instead I should understand that Jesus came to open our eyes to the true existence of nature that is much greater than the simplistic understanding that we may have of it at the present time, but for us to just go, wow, life and the world and God and our relationship with God, it's more amazing than I could have ever dreamed of. Him coming to say, no, I want to open a different world to you, but it's not a different world. It's this world. I just understand it more than you do. And therefore, I want to lead you into this. And when we understand that, we can very easily just say, you know, Jesus wasn't surprised because what he did was as natural as it could be. It's just a part of nature of which we were ignorant. That his system is one that operates in time, but beyond time, beyond space, beyond the limitations that our perception of a closed system is, it isn't that way at all. And that's why he could go, you can move mountains if you understood this. That's why he could say, you know, the, the problem with you understanding like Elijah is you don't get it. Yep, he was, he could have been, he will be. I see the whole picture, and I just had a conversation with them. See, once we allow the possibility of that, it opens the door for us to be able to understand Scripture in a powerful way. It humbles us, too, to know that, you know, the most ridiculous thing is when people just act like they're sure of everything. If you are sure of something, 
you probably don't understand it well enough. It's, it's an oversimplification if you think it's easy. Life is a miracle. It's complex. Reality is that way. Jesus wants us to understand that because otherwise believing in him would have to be in some sort of limited way rather than in a deep way that opens up our eyes to reality. I hope I haven't lost you on all that, but let me come back to earth a little bit and just mention another thing in this chapter that I wouldn't want to overlook is the role of a father. Um, Why does God, I mean, God did not father Jesus, really, I mean, to any, at least that's somewhat metaphorical, you could think, but why does he like to choose the metaphor that Jesus constantly calls God his father, calls himself the son, that at Jesus' baptism and now at transfiguration, this is my beloved son. I like him. Listen to him. See, I, I think that the role of a father speaks of define the ordinary order of the way that we see things. There is something mystically supernatural about the role of a father. There's something technically, genetically powerful about the role of a father. It's probably why in, you know, in the Bible it says that sin entered into the world through a man. You're like, what? Eve sinned first. Why can't we blame the woman? But there's something that a man passes down in terms of genetic information that there was damage in him and his ability to transfer life in that way that I don't understand. But all of the genealogies, and they aren't just sexist, the genealogies are always connecting through men. But if you think about it, what, you know, A mother, her connection with the child is profound, much more than a man's. I mean, the man contributes a a little bit of digital information, and he's pretty much done. The woman, like Mary, has that child growing within her. She feels it. She feels its first movement. It's eating what she gives it. The mother has this amazing role that she plays and then she's the one who actually pushes it out and then is the source of food and comfort and everything the mother is always going to be the mother and have that special role but the fathers and by the way speaking of which father's day is coming up in a couple weeks and it's a good time to invite your dads and other guys because um, we'll have hamburgers this year and hot dogs and nachos and all that kind of stuff. We like celebrating fathers. But I think there are some important reasons for doing that. And it's why we give the men meat and the women just get chocolate. But no. <laughs> but the man made a simple contribution and he has a profound influence over distance and over time that we really can't fathom. And the father's like, he's still, he is my son. I have contributed little, but he is connected to me genetically in a powerful way. And I think that whether it's the father bringing his son to be healed or whether it's Jesus claiming a tax exemption based on the fact that he's the son of the guy that owns the temple 
throughout the scriptures, we see this influence, this input that has to do with fathers and sons. And I think as we study time and space and science and biology more and more, we're going to find out even more powerful ways in which we are connected to our fathers. And I can't always explain it. You know, I can, I know who my dad was. And my dad was like obsessed with God, but he was abusive and he was in and out of mental hospitals until I was like in sixth grade and then I never saw him again. And everything in the way that he crammed things down my throat would have turned me away from God. But I was looking yesterday at the last Bible I think that he gave me when I was 10 years old, 1963, one of the last times I saw him. And I look what he wrote in my Bible, and it was exactly what is my life today. It's what he desired was for me too, like he, he quoted David saying to Solomon, with all you're getting, get wisdom. And this word of God is so powerful to be proclaimed to people. And I'm like, is that the magic way to turn your son into a pastor? No, but, and I'm thankful that I didn't pick up his mental illness, although you can judge that yourself. But <laughs> I can look at that and just go, that's kind of a weird wrinkle in time in a way that to a 10-year-old boy who was nothing but trouble, he saw something more. I'll tell you something else. All the years I was on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa, and I led the singing there all through the 80s, never once did I get up that, in that pulpit. And when I would teach for Chuck and different things, I looked at the crowd thinking, I wonder if my dad's here. Uh, you know, he goes to different churches, and I'm thinking if he's here, he's probably going to interrupt the service. It's going to be a mess. But for some reason... I still had a connection with somebody that I hadn't seen in, you know, 30 years or something. Um, fathers, are, fathers defy time and space. The more we understand that, the more we see the, the power of what a father is, then the more this kind of, it isn't mystical. It's actually real. It makes sense. But ultimately... In all of this, I, I think, well, if you study anything in life, you will come to a point of paradox. The more you study something, the more you will find apparent contradictions that cause you to hit a brick wall. Like, okay, wow, I know a lot about this, but it doesn't make sense. But 2,000 years ago, there's a Jewish carpenter who came into this world, and he looked at it, and he's like, yeah, this makes perfectly good sense to me. And I love these people, and I want to save them. I'm going to try to explain the truth to them as much as they are able to receive, but there's an awful lot that I know they're not going to comprehend at this point. But I want them to notice that I'm not freaking out, that I am functioning within this system and I'm never acting like a tourist going, whoa, that's amazing. And that's Jesus who comes to us and says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. 
I'm the life. You want to come to the Father? It's by me. And he says, I want you to enter into a connection with me so that you have a greater appreciation for reality. And if you will spend more time in prayer, and if you will grow in your faith, and if you are willing to fast and do other things that help you to focus on what's real, you will grow as well. But he says, here's a good place to start. I want you to remember this. When you get together, you're going to have a piece of bread, and you're going to have a cup, and that bread represents my body that's broken for you. That cup represents my blood that's shed for you. And he says, do this to remember me, because there is nothing more simple and concrete than communion, and yet there is nothing that surpasses all of our comprehension like communion. It's why people argue about it. It's why, you know, well, wait, is this literally his body? Is this figuratively? Well, how about, you know, I remember back in the hippie days, like, can you do communion with potato chips and Kool-Aid? Can you? Uh, it's not supposed to be something that you go, okay, I understand. But it's also not supposed to be just a ritual, It's a doorway that Jesus invites us through. That the time when we celebrate his broken body and his shed blood, as we do it together in communion, we are setting the toe of our foot into a world that's bigger than we can conceive of. Magic? Sort of. As long as you want to admit that the whole world is magical, there's, there's nothing that's simple about this world at all. But there's nothing in reality that isn't incredibly profound. That when you begin to think you understand it, you have not scratched the surface. And so communion says, let's just start there. Let's just start with body and blood together in common. Let's go from there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for coming to let us know that the world is so much more amazing, so much more magical, so much more powerful than what we can conceive of. Help us to live our lives with an awareness that we are only scratching the surface of reality and help us to love studying Because we know that the more we study, the more we will find you at the center of all of our studies. Thank you for leaving us with this simple declaration of your love and of our connection to you that in a powerful way, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are communing with you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.